If you want to find your place with me this morning, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11, chapter 11 and 12. We're going to be, be studying both chapters. We won't be reading all of both chapters. We'll be reading the first couple of verses of chapter 11 and then the last several verses of chapter 12. But uh, we will be diving in to both of these chapters this morning. But uh, before we do that, how many of you, it's safe to raise your hands here. This is a safe place, I promise. Um, how many of you have heard, if we're being honest, it's sort of a tired illustration now, but, but heard this illustration where we compare like uh, football games to church, right? And, and we'll talk about how, you know, we ought to be as excited in church as people are at football games, right? Who, who's heard sort of that illustration, right, that comparison? It's a good comparison. It's a, it's a fine illustration. Uh, there's there's uh, some challenging things about that, especially if you're like me and you're a sports fan, right? And, and how we get excited about these things, about sports, and, and maybe we're not always as excited about, uh, about the things that really matter, right? The things of God. We're not as excited about salvation. But it, I think it goes deeper than just fandom. Right when 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 we think about football stadiums or basketball arenas, especially here in the U.S., we're talking about massive buildings, right? Huge stadiums that seat thousands and thousands, and in some cases, even over a hundred thousand people. Right there, are these these magnificent uh, facilities, these magnificent arenas, and maybe sometimes you haven't just compared the way the people act in those buildings to the way the people act as far as their excitement goes in the church, maybe you've thought, man, why, why such magnificent buildings for a sports arena when our churches in comparison are so small, right? So simple, so, so seemingly insignificant in comparison to the, to the grand size of these stadiums. I mean, if we're being honest, this building is pretty insignificant compared to Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, isn't it? It's, it's pretty insignificant to the Dean E. Smith Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But I would actually point out to you this morning that it's actually always been this way for the church. This has always been the case. Buildings in the public square uh, have, have almost always been bigger and more significant, at least in the New Testament era, uh, than, than anything that the church was meeting in, anything that the church was gathering in. And so this just sets up the question, do you realize how God is working in the world today? Because this really gives us this this. this pretty good indication of how he's working, of how he intends to accomplish his purposes. Listen, as surprisingly as it may seem, what God is doing in the world today is God is building churches. But here's the thing. He's not building churches that are made up of arena seating, light shows and megatrons and all of these incredible things that are in football stadiums and basketball arenas. He's building churches that are made up of seemingly insignificant people who have normal lives, and get this, who have normal problems. That's what God's doing. And that should be incredibly encouraging to a room full of normal people with normal problems. And you say, my problems aren't normal. I promise you, your problems are normal. What you're dealing with at work, what you're dealing with at home, what you're dealing with in in your family, whatever the case may be. You are not the first and you are probably not the only one at this moment that are dealing with those sorts of problems. 
And those are normal problems. They were unfortunately made normal in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, right? And so we're just normal people with normal problems, but that's the exact kind of people that God has always been using to build His church and to advance His purposes. Now, Nehemiah chapter 11 and 12, I think, verify this reality even for us in the Old Testament. These two chapters really break down into three parts. The first part begins in Nehemiah 11.1 and it goes all the way through verse 26 of chapter 12. And guess what? This is just another list of names. This is the third time now in this study through Nehemiah that we've just studied a list of names. It's, it's, it's uh, this unglamorous, compared to the things that happen in the world, example of what God is doing. It's just this list of names. There's no glitz, there's no glamour. It doesn't seem all that exciting. It's just a list of ordinary people who lived a long time ago. Now, again, we've been talking about the significance of these lists. We'll talk about that more. We'll understand why it is more than, than just a, a boring list of names. But after that, we see, we see the people, the priests, the Levites, right? We're seeing all that in, in 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, all the way through verse 26 in chapter 12. And then you get to verses 27 through 43 of chapter 12, and that's where they're dedicating the wall. So we've got this list of all the people, right? All of the leaders, all of the people are being accounted for. These are the true Jews, the pure Jews. And then we have the dedication of the wall, right? That's what Nehemiah's been building. Then we get to verses 44 through 47, and we see them start to make provisions for temple worship. Now, if you're new with us this morning, let me just make sure we're clear on the context so you can really see the story of God unfolding here. In, in chapters 1 through 6... We were studying how the people rebuilt the wall, right? The physical wall around the physical city of Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7, we're seeing their identity reestablished, right? There's another list of names there. In chapter 8, we see that they're, that they're rereading the Torah or the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. And they're, they're resuming their celebration, their annual celebration of the Festival of Booths there in chapter 8. Chapter 9 is about repentance, right? They're confessing their sins. And as they're confessing their sins, they're almost rehearse, rehearsing or, or rehashing, we might say, God's mercy and God's grace that's been extended to them through the law, right? Through the Word of God that they had read. They had just read their entire history and how God had continued to be gracious to them and, and merciful to them. And then in chapter 10, we have this renewed commitment, right? They're, they're making a covenant to keep the covenant, right? That's exactly what happened in chapter 10. A couple of weeks ago, we studied that. And now we see this repopulation of the city and this dedication of the walls in chapter 11 and 12. So I invite you to read along with me. I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 11. Then we're going to flip over to the end of chapter 12. We're going to read verses 43 through 47, okay? Verse 43 is the very end of the dedication of the wall. And then when we get into verse 44, uh, that's where the provisions for worship come into play. So Nehemiah chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. And the rulers of the people dwelled at Jerusalem. The rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell in Jerusalem. Okay, now we get this big list of names and we move all the way down to chapter 12 over in, <coughs> excuse me, Verse 43, chapter 12, verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. Remember, this is the dedication of the wall now. For God 
had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Verse 44, At that time were some appointed over the chambers for the treasures, for the offerings, for the first fruits, and for the tithes, to gather into the... To, to gather into them, excuse me, out of the fields of the city, the portions of the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced for the priests and for the Levites that waited. And both the singers and the porters kept the ward of their God and the ward of their purification according to the commandment of David and of Solomon his son. For in the days of David, And Asaph of old there were chief of the singers, and songs of praise and thanksgiving unto God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the portions of the singers and the porters every day his portion. And they sanctified holy things unto the Levites. And the Levites sanctified them unto the children of Aaron. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your word this morning. And we pray that as we consider... These two chapters in Nehemiah, Lord, that what we know not, you would please teach us. What we have not, you would please give us. And what we are not, that you would please make us, Lord. That you would form us into the image of your Son, Jesus. That you would move us from a position where where we keep waiting on someone spectacular to do a spectacular thing and that you would remind us that you are still in the business of using normal people with normal problems to to accomplish incredible things for your kingdom. And so, Lord, our greatest prayer this morning is that you would use us. As humble as we can possibly ask that you would use us in the midst of our dysfunction, in the midst of, of our often unjustified disobedience, but that, Lord, You would just take Your Word and You would form us into the image of Your Son, Jesus, that we might accomplish the mission of Your Son, Jesus. That everyone in Weaverville and Mars Hill and Asheville and even to the ends of the earth would know the good news that grace has come through Your Son. We ask all of this in the name of His precious and holy name. Amen. So as we begin here back in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, this this is an interesting couple of verses, isn't it? At least to us, because I think most of the time when we think of Jerusalem, we, we think of like this grand and glorious scene, right? Something that everybody would want to be a part of. But it's pretty clear in these first two verses, people aren't signing up to live in Jerusalem, are they? People are obviously not eager to live in this city. Now, again, we got to keep this in proper perspective. We're talking about a city that was totally destroyed. And what we have in Ezra and Nehemiah, now we didn't, we didn't study Ezra before Nehemiah. If you were studying these in chronological order, you would begin with Ezra because what happens is Ezra comes in and rebuilds the temple and then God calls Nehemiah to come in and rebuild the wall. So before Ezra, this place is totally destroyed. So we don't have a grand and glorious city. We have a city that was only a few years previous in complete shambles. We have a city that's full of people that have been working themselves to the point of death, rebuilding a wall around the entire city in 52 days while defending against threats and attacks from the outside. So you have a city that has just been rebuilt Just enough to be able to call it a city, right? And you have people that are tired, that are weary. And it's obvious in verses 1 and 2 
Nobody seems really eager to live in this city. Now why? There's two reasons why. One, ironically enough, the walls that are meant to fortify the city actually paint a target on the city's back. Right When, when opposing armies come in, they're going to go where the walls are because the walls are defending something of value, right? Inside the walls is where the treasure is. They're not going to be worried about the villages and stuff on the hillsides. No, they want to tear down the walls and get the treasure on the inside. So it's really not all that safe to live in the city if we're thinking about this from a logical perspective, right? The people who sign up to live in the city are signing up to be the people that get attacked first, right? They, they get the brunt force of the opposing armies. But it's not just about, it's not just about uh, safety, if you will. It's not just that it's, it's, not just that it's dangerous. It's also about land, there's only so much land in the city. In fact, uh, the, the area inside the walls is slightly smaller than what it was before the walls were torn down. And so if you live in the city, there's not really this great opportunity to, live in, to, to own land. But, but if you live outside of the city, there's going to be a great opportunity to own land. And, and what does land represent? Land represents the opportunity to accumulate wealth, right? Because you need land to farm. You need, you need land to, to be able to produce for your family. And so it is more appealing to live outside of the city than to live inside of the city. But the ironic thing about all this is, look what verse 1 tells us about Jerusalem. It's what kind of city? It's the holy city. Why is it the holy city? Because it is the city, yes, where God is dwelling, but it's through this people in this city that God will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's a holy city because this city is making way for Jesus. Do you see that? But no one wants to live there because of safety concerns and diminished prosperity in terms of real estate. But then we get down to verse 2 and we see that the people praise those who volunteered to live in the city. So it seems that there's at least some who even though the lot didn't fall on their name have volunteered to live in the city. Right? Even though they weren't the ones who were chosen when they cast lots, they've said, okay, we're willing to live in the city. And the point is this. Those who were living in the city, those who willingly live in the city, here's what they were doing. They were putting God's program over their personal desires. They were putting the mission of God over the wealth of their families. They were putting the purposes of God over, the prefer- over their own preferences, right? I mean, there, there's, there's, there's seemingly no personal gain from living in this city. The, the, the only reason that they would be willing to live in this city is because they understand what this city is about. They've, they've read the law, they've seen what God is doing, and they understand that this city is about more than just them. This city is about more than just their people. This city is about the coming Messiah. This city is about the salvation of all nations. And so I think at this point we should simply ask the questions, what ways have I put... God's program over my own? In what ways have I put what God is doing over what I want to do? Man, this plays out in so many different ways in our life, doesn't it? It plays out in what we do with our finances. It plays out in what we do with our time. It plays out in what we do with our talents. It plays out in the way we raise our children. Man, can I just say to you for a moment, your primary responsibility is not to teach your child how to throw a baseball. Why 
Wives, your, your primary responsibility is, is, is not to teach your children how to cook, <laughs> right? How to clean. All of these, all, all of these assumptions that we just throw on what the American family ought to look like. Man, your primary responsibility, Dad, your primary responsibility, Mom, is give your children Jesus. Not Jesus and baseball. Not Jesus and, and homekeeping skills. Not Jesus and skills in the workforce. Right? No, it's, not, it's not Jesus and anything else. It's just give them Jesus, and when you give them Jesus, give them the mission of Jesus. Man, you ought to be more motivated to raise a missionary than a professional football player. And who knows? Maybe God will bless you twofold and you'll have a football player who's a missionary, right? I heard a story, I can't remember where I heard this, it was just a couple of weeks ago, but a pastor was talking about how he had been, uh, how he had talked to some families in the church about getting their priorities straight. And he told the dad, he's like, he's like, man, you are emphasizing football way too much for your son and he's missing Jesus. Like, you need to give up football for a little while and get your son some Jesus. Because football's not doing anything but distracting him, right? You know what the dad said? He said, well, how's he going to become Tim Tebow if he don't go to football practice? It's funny, but it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Listen, our primary responsibility is the mission of God. And you will not recognize the mission of God so long as you're putting yourself first. Your kids will not recognize the mission of God so long as you are putting them first. Right, the holy city that we dwell in now is not a physical city. It's a spiritual community that is, that is made up of gospel-believing people. And it's this gospel that we put first. It's this mission that we advance. And so we are forced to ask ourselves two questions. First, what are we willingly offering ourselves to do that is less advantageous to us but advances the kingdom of God? Now listen, it's really easy to talk about being missionaries and church planters, and we need all of those things. And God may be calling you into full-time ministry, and if He is, the most important thing you can do is answer that call. But to some extent, God is calling all of us into bivocational ministry. He's calling you to be a missionary in the school system where you work. He's calling you to be a missionary in the factory where you work. He's calling you to be a missionary to the McDonald's that you go to to get coffee in the mornings. God is calling us to the ministry. Every one of us to the ministry. Now here comes the really easy plug. we got new kids ministry coming up on Wednesday nights. And God may be calling you to that ministry. And here's the thing. I promise you it's going to feel super inconvenient. It's going to feel super overwhelming. You're not going to feel like you're up to the task. The good news is, you're not and none of us are. But what we see in the gospel, what we see in the book of Nehemiah, is people that selflessly lay down their lives, their priorities, their concerns. They serve the Lord. They rebuild the walls. They've already rebuilt the temple. And now... In just 400 years, the Messiah will come and salvation will go to the ends of the earth. 
it may seem insignificant in the grand schemes of what's happening out there. But the gospel takes over the world in small ways a little bit at a time. Man, the early church, they didn't have big buildings. They weren't meeting in Roman coliseums. They were meeting in dark closets and dark basements. Cold caves, hiding from persecution. And yet the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Because they set aside what is convenient. They set aside what is profitable. And they serve the Lord. And so what are we willingly offering ourselves to do that is less advantageous for us and advances the kingdom of God? Second question. This is important. Don't miss this second question. The first question really is a call to serve. It's a call to action, but don't miss this. We, who, who is it that we should bless in our local church that is doing what no one else wants to do? Because let's, let's be honest, we have a really easy time pointing out all of the things that need to be done, don't we? All of the great ideas of things that our church should be doing or could be doing to reach the community. And you're certain God is calling somebody to do those things, but it's just not you, right? And you know what? It may not be you all the time. But what God has called all of us to do is to bless those who are serving. To bless those who are... You're, 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 if you're serving, you're probably serving in a way that I can't serve. And I still, even though I'm serving, I have the responsibility to bless you as you serve. Right, and so, so we bless those who, who are doing what no one else wants to do. We bless the nursery workers. We bless teachers and volunteers and kids ministry and VBS. Right, we, we, we bless those who are the ones behind the scenes that you don't ever see, but they're the ones that are actually making Sunday morning worship services happen. We bless the cooks, amen? <laughs> and those who, who clean up after the meals, those who are doing all of those things that seem so insignificant, but are making everything else happen. We bless those people. And so who should we bless in our local church that is doing what no one else wants to do? Listen, every day we should be looking to bless people that set aside what they would like to do in order to serve and advance the kingdom of God. But even more, we should be seeking to be the person that sets aside what we would like to do in order to serve and advance the kingdom of God. Listen, this record of these ancient people that we've been reading, hopefully you're already seeing it, but this points us towards Christ. Do you realize Jesus is the supreme example of the one who left all that was advantageous to Himself? And He went to a place that was not pleasant for Him. He came to an earth that was not exciting for Him. It had nothing to offer Him in the form of pleasure. And you know what He did when He got here? He got crucified. And so to follow Jesus is to follow Him in laying down our lives for the benefit of others just as He did for us. We may not have a lot of things in common, but we all have this in common. None of us deserved that God would condescend down to this earth and die this sort of death for us. And yet we have... We have the prideful nature, the audacity, if you will, to look around and say, that person, those people are not worth my time in serving. 
that person is not worth my time in seeing the gospel reshape and reform their lives. Can I just say to you this morning, you weren't worth the time. And you certainly weren't worth the Son of God, but God sent His Son anyway. And so we serve anyway. We disciple anyway. We encourage and we bless anyway. Listen, healthy churches are the kind of churches that embrace this kind of Christ-likeness. Then, moving quicker here, verses 3 and chapter 11 all the way through verse 26. Like I said, this is our third list of names. Verses 3 through 24 in chapter 11 here are the names of those who lived in the city. Verses 25 through 36 are those who would live outside of the city and other villages. And towns, and then verses 1 through 26 in chapter 12 is this list of the priests and Levites. Now, notice the respect given to those who are risking their life to live in the city. Verse 6, they're called valiant men. Verse 14, they're called mighty men of valor. Listen, these men are valiant because they are risking their necks for the kingdom of God. They're putting everything on the line to advance the mission of God. Now, let me draw your attention to Nehemiah eleven seventeen. This may seem insignificant at first, but I think it's actually quite significant as it's building towards where this passage is going. And ultimately this passage is going towards the worship of God, isn't it? But we find here a genealogy that's traced back to Asaph. You might recognize the name Asaph because it's subscripted to a number of psalms. There's a number of psalms uh, that are credited to Asaph as, uh, as, as the author or as the psalmist, one might say. Now, this shows us what these lists are doing. It's an example of what's being accomplished here. We've talked about this already. These, this, these lists are, uh, of people emphasizes the legitimacy of those who have returned to the land. Their, their, their legitimacy is established in their uh, genealogical continuity, if you will. It's, it's a continuous genealogical line from those who were redeemed out of Egypt, right? It's, it's pure Jews, as we have said before. It's a a pure people of God. And they've been set aside for the pure worship of God. So these lists ultimately are about this. These lists are ultimately about the right worship of God. That's what God is doing. He is creating a situation where right worship will be reestablished. They tell us, these lists tell us that God's people understood God's holiness They understood the responsibilities of the redeemed. Here's the thing. Do you understand why God created? I mean, I think this is an important question, right? I mean, if all you read is Genesis chapter 1, well, okay, it's pretty obvious why God created, right? But then we get to Genesis 3 and the whole thing is a mess, isn't it? And so we wonder, why did God create? Can I submit to you this morning that God created for this reason? God created to give joy. But here's the very specific way that God gives joy. It's the only, kind of, the only way we can receive this kind of joy is from God, and this is the only way we can receive it. God intends to give joy through the worship of Him. That's how God gives joy. Man, if you want real joy, if you want real lasting joy, I'm not talking about temporary happiness. I'm not just talking about a few good days here and a few, uh, maybe a few bad days there. I'm talking about joy in the good times and in the bad times. It begins with the right worship of God. 
God created so that creation could worship Him because He knew as creation worshipped Him, it would give joy to His creation. This is part of the goodness of God. But, of course, as I said, rather than enjoy Him, people found ways to make themselves miserable. It didn't take Adam and Eve long to find out how to make themselves miserable. right? How to rebel against God and this plan. And so now, Adam and Eve and all their descendants, including us, have sinned, right? Becoming enslaved and destroying ourselves. And Scripture testifies that that God mercifully delivers His people. He finds us on a path to destruction and He transports us to a path that leads to life. He, He transports us from misery to joy. But then we come on down to verses 27 through 43. This is the dedication of the law. In verse 27, in order to understand what's happening here, uh, we really have to think back to 1 Chronicles 24, right? In 1 Chronicles 24, David organized the priest into 24 divisions. That was two divisions for each month of the year, right? And then they would serve in the temple of God for two weeks. But then the other 50 weeks, they, like everyone else, would serve in the temple of creation, if you will. Right? They were working the ground. They were, uh, they were providing for themselves. And so they served in the temple for two weeks. The other 50 years, they're working. They're, they're doing what everyone else is doing in order to provide for themselves. And so, like the priest, the Levites were not necessarily full-time in Jerusalem. And so we see they're being brought in for this, really, this elaborate worship service. Then verses 28 and 29, we, we don't know exactly what uh, these, these rites or these... Uh, these this, this work, this, uh, these rites of purification looked like. Uh, they probably involved sacrifices for cleansing and probably some sort of ceremonial washing. But notice how they purified the people as well as the gates and the wall. Right? What they're doing is they're purifying themselves and their city. These people are setting themselves apart from the rest of the world for the worship of God. They're going to be different than the rest of the world. Sound familiar, church? We're going to be different than the rest of the world. And the reason we're going to be different than the rest of the world is because we're going to worship the one true God and we're going to have a joy that can only be found through the worship of the one true God. And so we're going to be different than the rest of the world. And these people are different than the rest of the world. Verses 31 and 32. What Nehemiah has done now is he's divided the people into these two choirs, right? One choir is going to go one way. The other choir is going to go the other way. And then what's going to happen is the two choirs are going to end up encircling the entire city and they're going to meet at the temple. Verses 33 through 36. Note here, Zechariah traces his descent all the way back to Asaph, right? That psalmist that we talk about. And then we see that they carry the musical instruments of David, right? Of David, the man of God, as it literally says. The first, <clears throat> so the first choir we see at the end of verse 36 was led by Ezra. Then we come down to verses 37 through 40 here. And it describes the other choir, right? It describes their route around the city. And what you see is that each choir has significant lay leadership, significant priestly leadership, and significant musical representation. And so this entire procession, it's balanced, it's elegant, it's worshipful. Everyone is involved. Verses 41 through 43, we see this glorious celebration really coming into picture. But here's the thing, back to where we began. This is a glorious picture, but it's a glorious picture not so much because of what is happening, but who they're worshiping. If we had the opportunity just to watch a a rerun, right, pull this event up on our DVR when we get home, 
And, and, and watch this event, this parade, if you will, compared to some of the parades in Persia from where Nehemiah came. Just looking at it from a completely uh, worldly perspective, you would think, wow, that's pretty insignificant compared to what they're doing in Persia. And Persia is this big city. It's this big kingdom full of all of these people. I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about literally, physically, elaborate events that they could hold. Here we have walls and a temple that have just been built and people who are exhausted from the work. And so by comparison from the outside, what hap- what's happening in Persia, what's happening in Bank of America Stadium is way more grand than what's happening in Jerusalem or what's happening in the church. Do you see how this has been the way that it always is? We're not trying to be elaborate as the world is elaborate. We're trying to worship a God that the world does not yet know so that they may too enjoy the joy of that God. And so the question is simply this, for what will you live? Are you living for what looks impressive on the outside but is empty on the inside? Or are you going to live for what may not look very impressive to those from the outside, but on the inside is real because God is being worshipped and joy is being established? Finally, we close with verses 44 through 47. We see these provisions of worship all coming together now. We read that these provisions were made for the temple in these verses. The Torah or the law, those first five books, stipulated the provisions of everything mentioned here. So what is evident from this is that they've studied, right? And we've seen that. That's been a consistent theme through Nehemiah. They've studied the Scriptures. They've seen what God requires. And they are committing themselves to make sure that what God requires is what is rendered. And here's the thing. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. We've said it before. You're going to hear me say it again. But if you really want to know what God wants you to do with your life, you've got to be in this Word. We're not going to take a poll. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But man, if today is the only day this past week that you've been in this Word, you are not going to know what God wants you to do. If you showed up this morning and you were like, well, I'm going to go to church this morning because I need Brent to tell me what to do. You're going to be in bad shape this week. My job is to tell you what's in this Word. Absolutely. And I will do that. But in 40 or 45 minutes, I cannot, I cannot give you everything that you possibly need from this Word in order, in order for you to be obedient to what God is calling you to do. Let's just be honest, some of y'all want to walk out with Him, right? Because sometimes it feels way easier to walk away from this Word than it is to walk in this Word. And yet God has called us to walk according to this Word. And so if you want to know how to walk in your place of work, if you want to know how to walk in your marriage, if you want to know how to walk in your parenting, don't take this Word home and throw it on the shelf. But take this Word and throw it out on the floor or on the bed or on the, the table and open it up and get your face in it. And this Word will give you what you need in order to worship God the way He's calling you to worship Him. To serve Him in the way that He's calling you to serve Him. To restore joy in your life as He intends to restore joy.
So very specifically here, verse 44, the priests and the Levites are authorized. And at this point, they're, they're these faithful ministers of God, right? These men, they met the qualifications descending from Levi and from Aaron, and they were set apart for the worship of God. And so there were people, they're rejoicing over those who had led them in worship. That's good. Verse 45 tells us that the service of their God and the services of purification was performed as David and his son Solomon had prescribed, right? They're following what the Word says. And really, this is a statement of faith because it declares that through that, that even though the first temple had been destroyed, right? Physically, it was destroyed. Physically, it had been leveled. They believed that God would keep his the promises that He made to David. They believed that God was faithful to His word. They they believed that God was still faithfully pursuing the the program that He had set forth, right? That He was still going to dwell in Jerusalem at the temple. And that from that temple in Jerusalem, that His glory would spread to the ends of the entire earth. Verses 46 and 47. We see the leaders and the singers and the songs of praise and thanksgiving. They're described in verse 46. Then verse 47 provides another link between the generation of the returnees and the generation of the rebuilders when it, when it says, in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, right? All Israel literally contributed the daily portions. Now stop and consider this. Nehemiah's day was not necessarily a prosperous day. Nehemiah's day was a time of economic and political crisis. The people of God were not thriving, yet they were sacrificially giving to the worship of God. Notice there's no demands in verse 47. The people set apart what was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart what was for the priest, and the people funded the worship of God. Their perspective was this, whatever it cost us, even though we're going to have to sacrifice, we must support the worship of God in the temple because this is how God is bringing about His purposes and so we have to give our lives to it. And so as we think about what this means for us today, let me encourage you with this simple fact. God has always been pleased to choose the weak things of this world. And so if you're here this morning and you see yourself as weak, you've got the right mindset for God to use you. Because God has always been pleased to use the weak things of this world. God chose Abraham, a man with no children. And He said, out of you will come many nations. Out of you will come many offspring. He wanted to bless the world through that one man and his descendants. When Abraham's descendants had multiplied, right, they were slaves in Egypt. Think about that. God chose His people, slaves, people who were in bondage. They would be led by Moses, a man who had been a shepherd in the wilderness for 40 years. Then when God went to choose a king, what did He do? He chose the youngest son of Jesse, who Jesse had all but forgotten. He brings in all of, us, all of his other sons for the prophet to choose a king from because David is so small and so insignificant, he knows there's no chance that God could use him. And what does God do? He says, no. Go get the insignificant one in the field. That's the one I want to be the king of my people. But he doesn't just promise to make David a king of his people. What does he promise? To bring forth the promised Messiah, the Savior of this world, through that insignificant shepherd who, who's, who had been forgotten by his own father. And this is the way God works. God chose Ezra and Nehemiah and for all of their standing in the Persian court in the grand scheme of all things. They were not that important in and of themselves. And so God chooses people like us. He chooses churches like ours for the manifestation of His glory and for the advancement of His kingdom on the earth. 
And so I just challenge you this morning, let's be those who embrace what God has done. Let's embrace what God is doing. Let's let's embrace our opportunity to steward and proclaim the gospel to our children, to our spouses, to our workplaces, and to our community. And let's be a people who are able to join with the Apostle Paul in boasting in our weaknesses and living to worship. As Rebecca comes, I invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, maybe this morning all you need to do is be reminded of the fact... That yes, indeed, you are weak, but God intends to use the weak things of this world to accomplish His great purposes. Maybe God's calling you into some type of full-time ministry, some type of bivocational ministry. Maybe you've not been the missionary you should have been in your workplace. Maybe you've not been the missionary you should have been in your home. If you would like, I invite you this morning, you can come and you can, you can come to this altar and you can bring that before the Lord. You can pray with your kids, you can pray with your spouse, you can Do whatever you need to do, but the most important thing is realizing that God intends to use insignificant people. That means God intends to use me and you and what to the rest of the world may seem like an insignificant place, but to accomplish the great things that God has set before us. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for what we see in Your Word. And Lord, we're thankful that even though we are insignificant, and yeah, we're, we're insignificant because we've been disobedient. We're insignificant because, because we're, we're sinful. We've been rebellious against You. But it's exactly the point when we realize all of those things that You step in and rescue us. And You call us to do something far more significant than we could have ever imagined. Worship You. And so, Lord, all of the things that we've seen happening in the book of Nehemiah, we've seen prayer, we've seen fasting, we've seen the study of Your Word. We've seen the physical labor with their hands. We've seen the overcoming of persecution, threats of violence. We've seen heartfelt repentance. We've seen covenants made. And now we see that the result of all of that is simply right worship. And so Lord, challenge us to repent of the things in our life that desperately need repentance. And clearly call us, Lord, to give up everything that this world offers, everything that this world sees as significant to serve You, to advance Your mission to the ends of the earth, that not just the people in this building would worship You, but that the people in all of our communities, all across the face of this globe, would turn to You and worship and experience the joy that You intended us to experience in Genesis 1. That You would restore all things and make all things right for Your glory and for the good of Your people. And we ask this in the precious name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.